Okay, Advent. What's the point? What's the point of Advent? Some of you, this is new for you. You come from church backgrounds that do not uh, practice worship Advent. And some of you come from high church backgrounds where you've done it so many times that you tend to forget about the importance of it. And so what's the point of Advent? How many times have we talked about over the years where uh, a tradition or ritual done well brings Christ into our lives? This is about the time I'd be walking back and forth on the stage pointing at everything, okay? You're just going to have to look at it. And so rituals are designed to bring Christ in a very real way into our life, into our heart in a way that we grasp it. Uh, the old translation of 1 Corinthians, we see through a glass darkly, okay? And so that's what we live with. We, we live in the very present world in God's presence. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation, okay? So we enjoy the presence of God in very intimate ways, but uh, we don't experience that part of the, the creation yet, the spiritual side, where we can see it. If I could take these off and put on spiritual lenses, this would look very different. Paul says we're seated at the right hand of Christ right now, but we can't see that. And so a large part of what we do as Christians in today's world is really live by faith, okay? Uh, Jesus said that to Thomas, you believe because you've seen the pale marks? Blessed are those who do not, believe, or do not see but still believe. So a good portion of our life is spent imagining what it would be like and living by faith that what we believe is real, our hope is authentic and genuine and real. Rituals are designed to, just for a second, turn that dark glass clear so you can see a picture of Jesus. One day, when we get to the end of the story in Revelation, one day we'll be with him on the new earth, okay? We'll get to look in his eyes. We'll get to hold his hands. We'll get to feel his embrace. We'll get to talk to him, ask him our questions, you see, the sacrifice of Jesus, and this is what Advent is all about, the sacrifice of Jesus to become human uh, is eternal. It's ongoing. It didn't stop. The cross is a key part of that sacrifice, but the sacrifice is far bigger than that. God wanted to live with us. And so I'm just trying to imagine what the conversation is like among the Trinity, you know? So who's going to go? Jesus says, I will. I'll go. And so they say, okay, here's what it's going to look like. You're going to go down uh, to earth to live with them. And you're going to find out what it's like. You get to bring us down into their midst so that they can see us. By the way, we call that the hypostatic union. That's a technical term for the doctrine. Fully God, fully human, united in one body for eternity. And oh, by the way, when you go down, you're going to be born a baby. Okay? Okay. And you're not going to know anything. You're going to have to learn, just like they do. So you won't be able to use your divine prerogatives. So you won't be able to, uh, to exercise your omniscience. None of that. You're going to be a baby. You see, the, the Advent is this story, this most incredible story on the planet. We're at the, the very pinnacle of all of our uh, redemptive history and tradition today. And so when you see nativity sets all around the country, we have four or five in our church alone. And uh, you see them, and they have um, different animals 
around them. We have a joke. We kind of laugh at it because why do we always have the Magi there, the wise men, because they didn't come for two years later. So why are they always in the nativity set? So we have fun laughing about it. But the truth is, this is not an indication of time. This is a statement of theology. All of the characters involved in this story are present at this scene when you see them. And so uh, we have some out in the sanctuary. You can look at them. So that's why they're set up the way they are, where you have animals. There's no animals mentioned in the scriptures were there, but it makes sense they're in a manger. So when you look at the characters, that's what we've been doing through Advent is guiding you through all of the major players of this incredible, uh, brilliant moment in history, a moment that nothing else in earth compares to this moment when Jesus came to us. So the first Sunday, we talked about the shepherds and the uh, angels. We called them the announcers. By the way, if you haven't paid attention, out on the glass right at the back of the sanctuary here, uh, each week the, the kids are all hanging up ornaments that they made symbolizing the week of what we talked about. So it's growing, so you can see it across there. So stop and look at them. Kids made those. So we talked about the shepherds and the uh, angels. They were the announcers. The angels declared the message to the shepherds. Right? We bring you noise, news of a great joy. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born. And so they went and said, let us go see this incredible thing that God told us. And they saw him and they went and told everybody. So the first group of people he went to were Jewish people. Not just Jewish people, but they were shepherds. And we've talked about that. They were the lowest on the low on the social stratum. Uh, they, nobody wanted to be a shepherd. Nobody. And so he picked the lowest people in Judaism to announce the birth. And then the second week, we talked about the receivers. Those are the animals. And I argue that they represented all of creation. So the animals that we traditionally have are animals that are very significant in our theology. That we talk about the donkey and the camel, et cetera, et cetera, the lamb. We spend a lot of time talking about we are sheep, okay? Jesus became a sheep led to the slaughter as a sheep, okay? And so the animals, they represent all of creation because creation, God loves every, every, all parts of creation. He made it. So creation is um, crying out, waiting for us to be redeemed. They're waiting for us to get our act together. They're not the ones that messed up. We are. And so God, Romans 8 says, he subjected them to the same frustration we're subjected to. And then one day, when it's all over, when it's all said and done, we'll all be together. And creation will, chair, uh, they'll get to, you know, the trees will wave their hands and praise. The rocks will cry out. The, the animals, all of those things. Lamb, the lamb will, a lion will lay down with the lamb. And so all of creation is awaiting. So creation receives the Messiah through the animals. That was the second week of Advent. Third week, thank you, Rob, talked about the Magi, the wise men. They were the ones who, who were from Persia. They're Gentiles. And so they were known throughout history. They had to be present for any of the Persian kings to be crowned as a king. And so you couldn't be a king in any of the Persian empire until the wise men showed up. That's how important they were. And he tied it back to Daniel and how Daniel was the chief of all the wise men. That's probably how they learned about the star. So think about the first three weeks. We have the Israelites, the lowest of the Jews, show up. They're, they're the announcers. We have all the animals representing creation. And then we have the Gentiles. That's the gospel. Right there. That's the gospel. God loves this entire creation. Every human, including 
your rebellious children. He loves them all so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes except violate your free will for you to learn about him. He desires all of creation. So even the Christmas stories laid out where all of the key characters involved in this gospel message are there. So that raises a question that we're going to have to address today. Today we're talking about the protectors, um, Mary and Joseph. You know, way back in Genesis 3, God promised that a son would defeat this serpent, crush his head. That began a journey over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, millennium of years, where they were waiting for the son. They, uh, it wasn't that girls were important. In Israel history, girls were, uh, we see it in the tradition of the Old Testament as well, girls were considered equal with men, and they were just as highly valued, in many cases more highly valued. And so, but the son was looked for for a different reason, because one of the sons was going to be this Messiah who would defeat the enemy. So, uh, you know, is it this one? Is it this one? How about that one? Maybe her son. Her son, maybe it's her son. Maybe it's her son, maybe it's hers. Maybe it's hers. No, maybe it's hers. How would you know? So you can imagine this quest for the son. They're waiting year after year. When is he coming? Pretty soon the prophets come on the scene. They begin to give us more of a colorful picture of this son when he's coming. Then God gets quiet for 450 years. And then, who? how would you know? And all of a sudden... You're a 12 or 13-year-old girl, and an angel appears and says, you are the one. Can you imagine that? If God is going to send his son as a baby who cannot, who will not live out and fulfill his uh, divine prerogatives, he's simply going to be a baby. Who's he going to choose? Which one of you is righteous and faithful enough to give birth to the Messiah? How would he even choose that? Who did he pick? Why? He's going to entrust all of redemptive history to two sinful fallen people. There's no story in all of the world like this. No other religion has this. Today we're focusing on love. It's an incredible love story that God loves his creation so much he's willing to entrust his son to us. Knowing that we're going to kill him, but he still had to find parents who would take care of him, their protectors. Somebody had to teach him the law. Somebody had to show him love. Somebody had to protect him when Herod started killing everybody, run off to Egypt. Somebody had to do all that. So who is this couple that God chose? If tradition is followed, we know a lot about Jewish tradition in this era. Mary was between 12 and 13 when she got the news. Maybe not even a teenager. Would you do that? If you were God? Especially those of you that have teenagers. Would you entrust God to 
to your teenager? Think about that. It's remarkable. So, let's introduce Mary. That's the Luke story. Luke focuses on Mary. Matthew focuses on um, uh, Joseph. You won't see the scriptures up here because, our, as you heard, our uh, projector just went out. So I'm going to read you some of the story, okay? There are several surprises in both of these stories, and I'm going to pick a few out, three with each one, so you can see how remarkable and unique this story is. The first surprise is that Luke contrasts the temple, Zechariah, with Nazareth. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 21, he says, now remember that Zechariah, he's the father of John the Baptist, he had gone into the holy place and was taking care of all the incense. And when he went to the incense altar, boom, an angel appeared to him, terrified. And while he was in there for a long time, the people began to wonder what's wrong because they couldn't go in. You know, did something happen to him? So then verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. So you have the temple. Right after this in verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town in Galilee. So right off the bat, he's contrasting the temple with Nazareth. Or let me say it a different way. He's contrasting um, sacred space. If you were there during the amphitheater, we talked the whole summer about temples and tabernacles, sacred space with Nazareth, an unknown place. It's so unknown, they have to tell us that it's located in Galilee. They don't ever tell us where Jerusalem was located, for example, or Capernaum. Okay, we know those. Those are all cities that have known repute, but not this one. This is an unknown town for most people. Uh, There's no uh, no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament, the intertestamental literature, Josephus, rabbinic literature. They don't talk about Nazareth. In fact, the, the joke kind of rose up. You probably saw it if you've watched The Chosen, but we see it in the Bible. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? It's an insignificant town way up in Galilee. And the fact that it's way up in Galilee is even more surprising because that was part of the northern kingdom that was punished by God by being destroyed. By being destroyed. Utterly destroyed the northern kingdom. By the way, when you look at the life of Christ, when he selected 12, that was to symbolize fulfillment of the prophecy that he would bring all 12 tribes back together again. And so we're way up in Galilee. Nobody's, Messiah's not coming from there. They're the unfaithful ones. He's going to come from probably Jerusalem. He doesn't. It's Nazareth in Galilee. So um, we've learned through archaeology about Nazareth. It was a very small hamlet of earthen dwellings. Had no significance whatsoever. None. Its population probably never exceeded 500 in its history before Christ. That's how insignificant it was. And yet, that's who God chose. It's where where he chose. So we've moved from the temple, sacred space, of which there is no glory because the glory has not returned, to Nazareth. Remember, we said this summer, wherever God shows up, that's where God's glory is. And so God's glory appears in an unknown little town, a little hamlet. That's where he shows up. The second surprise is that the story sets up this incredible contrast with the worldview of the time. Now, if you'd lived back then, these stories would have had a different impact on you. So I have to do a little bit of imagination with you to get you to picture what's actually happening. People that are reading this going, oh my goodness. So the, in the ancient Near East, there were many ideas of myths and stories about the gods chasing women. 
It didn't matter what nation you came from. The gods were always chasing the women. In fact, in Canaanite mythology, that's what thunder represented when it rained. The, the uh, gods were female. The male gods were chasing the female gods around. Okay, that's what thunder represented. They're on their chariots, right, going after them. And so the gods corresponded to us. And so in a patriarchal, patriarchal world, men chased the women. And so the gods were doing that with uh, the female gods. In addition to that, the mythic heroes and the founders of religious cults, the emperors, etc., they were believed to have conceived in extraordinary circumstances in order to highlight their importance. So all the great people of the ancient world were, um, came from elites, wealthy people, senators, things like that. And they, they had these supernatural occurrences, supernatural occurrences around their birth. That's what made them great. Okay? That's the worldview. In contrast to that, uh, Mary's not chased by God. Nor does God consort with her. It's just the opposite. He is gentle with her, encourages her not to fear. That's how he starts. You know, I went and had surgery on Friday, went to the PT on Monday. I've been going to PT all year because they were supposed to do the surgery in February, but I had COVID. So they, this was the earliest they would do it. So I've been going to this PT. I just love her all year. So I walked in. I said, finally, at least one day where you have to be kind and gentle. She so goes, gentle, yes. Kind, no. <laughs> and we laughed. And so God approaches Mary. And you're going to see, if I tell the story right, this overflowing love and grace, the way he approaches her. She's only 12 or 13. Okay? You could just almost picture her just holding her and taking really good care of her. She does not come from a position of political influence or power, but rather from a position of humility and poverty. We learned that from Luke chapter 2, verse 22. It says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Uh, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping um, with what's said in the law, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. That comes out of Leviticus 12. You see in Leviticus 12, it tells you you had to offer a sacrifice. But the poorest of the poor couldn't afford it. So he gave them the option to offer a turtle dove or a pigeon. That's how, cheap, that's how poor they were. So this is a clue that with Mary, we're talking about somebody of extreme poverty. She is the poorest of the poor, okay? So what we learn from this is that Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth both occurred in humble circumstances very different than all of the stars and the elites of that time, how they were born. No one would have selected Nazareth, certainly not a manger, and certainly not a poor woman. It's not the way it worked. That's what makes it unique. Third surprise is that God approaches Mary in a manner designed to demonstrate his love for her, his care for her, uh, while increasing her faith at the same time. It's really what he does with us. You know, I've been a Christian 44 years. I've been through a lot. This is my 13th surgery. You know, I lost my wife. I had cancer, on and on and on. All that stuff, right? And you know what I think at this age? I pray to the Lord often, every day. And I think one of the things I thank him for regularly is thank you for being gentle. I look back on my life. I know he took a baseball bat to me at certain times, but looking backward, I, I, I find so much joy in being with him that it feels gentle looking back. 
I'm beginning to understand why Paul talked about, um, you know, five times he was beaten uh, with 40 minus one. That's 40 was, 40 lashes was a symbol for death. He's beaten 39 times. Three times he was uh, stoned, uh, or twice. Three times he was in shipwrecks. And he goes on and on and on. And then he says, these are momentary light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. The older I get, the more I begin to realize that. I look back on the things earlier in life, and I'm so grateful for them and what happened. And so he's, he's showing this same care, which you have all experienced at some time or other, to demonstrate his love for her. He chose Mary, and, but he's not going to leave her hanging. He's going to increase her faith in the process. So you're Mary, and you're 12 and a half, 13 years old, and you have been betrothed. You have been engaged, committed to your husband. What does that mean? We'll come back to that in just a second because this is an important part of the story. Gabriel shows up in Luke chapter 1, and he says to her, verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. So he starts with gentle language. He calls her highly favored and tells her that the Lord is with her. This is the first time in Scripture, by the way, where an angel shows reverence for a human being. Uh, well, she's carrying the Messiah, God's son. Makes sense. <coughs> As Mary soon learns, though, uh, she is not the mother of grace, but the daughter of grace. She's the recipient of grace. And her response, and not surprising, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. So Gabriel reassures her a second time, you have found favor with God. I wonder what that's like to be told that by an angel. I can tell you that because my theology says it, the Bible says it. And I hope you all really take that to heart, that you have found favor with God. God is pleased with you. We are a fragrant aroma to him. He is pleased with you. But to have an angel tell you that? Oh my goodness. I can't even imagine for a, a girl this young uh, who is so vulnerable. Her life is right in front of us is in trouble because uh, she did the one thing that you're not allowed to do. She got pregnant. She got pregnant. In all the churches I've been in, I've told the moms and dads, I hope and pray that your daughter doesn't get pregnant. But if she does, I hope she does it when she's here and not at college so that we can help her because we know how to show grace and love. And I've been in churches where that's happened and we know how to love them. So for Mary, for reasons she cannot fathom, stands in God's grace. She has no place to go. Mary is now extremely vulnerable with few, or I would say even no resources except to trust God. She's young. She would normally be expelled from Joseph's house. We'll talk about that in a minute. She has no place to turn to except to God. This vulnerability, by the way, stays with her throughout her entire life. In a culture that was dependent on men, what can she do? Nothing. Where can she go? There's no place. 
So this raises the second question in the story. What's Joseph going to do? So let me introduce Joseph to you. Um, Imagine Joseph. Okay, back then, as far as we can tell, the girls were betrothed around, um, committed, I would say, around 12 to 13, 12 and a half, 13, 13 and a half. And the men were typically older than that, um, mostly double, so in the mid-20s, maybe up to 30. Um, That's probably true of Joseph, the average age of the peasant in Rome. The Roman Empire was around 28 to 30, 32, somewhere in there. And he's already gone. Uh, We don't hear him again after Jesus' 12-year-old, the journey to Jerusalem. So he died. And so, uh, so you're Joseph, and you're marrying this young girl, and the marriage has been arranged. Now, that's really a surprise to us. We're not used to that. Uh, about 20 years ago, when I was teaching in India, uh, they're still my good friends. This young couple was husband and wife were in my class in uh, Madurai, India. And I was talking to them on break. They'd been married, I don't know, one or two months or whatever. And I said, so tell me about your marriage and how that worked out and everything. And they said, well, our fathers, they uh, signed the contract. They were the ones that arranged for our marriage. You know, they had the dowry and the whole thing. And so... I said, oh, really? So your, your fathers chose for you each other? Yeah. And I said, okay. And I said, so how did you get to know each other through the engagement process? And they looked at me like I was born on another planet. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I mean, you got, you had got to spend time learning about each other? Oh, no. We weren't allowed to see each other until wedding day. Okay, now that's not the world I grew up in. <laughs> and I said, wow. And I looked at him and I said, what was your first thought when you saw her he grins and he said my father picked the most beautiful woman in India to be a bride and I said were you worried about your marriage and they looked at each other and they go why would we worry our parents know us better than we do they picked people they knew that we would be excited about so they entered marriage believing that this would become their best friend and lover 20 years later that's still true that's how they entered marriage. Okay? This is what we're talking about here. So, the marriage has been arranged. Um, he probably didn't know much about her, but she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. What would you think? It's one of the most shaming things that could have occurred in that world. It doesn't get more shaming than that. And a shaming out of contact context it doesn't get more shaming than a wife who is unfaithful in many parts of the roman empire you could have had her, had her executed for that okay we're going to see in a minute the jewish law required that he divorce her because of that now when we get to matthew this is the story of uh, joseph uh, Matthew never actually records the story of Jesus' birth. He's, he's giving us the theological background to the story so we can understand. Do you realize what's happening here with Joseph and Mary? Let me make it as simple as I can. I've used the imagery all year of the chess match between God and Satan. Okay? That Satan's always trying to win. God's always um, winning him back, beating him. With Mary and Joseph, God's got his hand on the queen and he's getting ready to move the queen in place and say, checkmate. This is the one place in history where God wins. The entire battle. Everything. This is it right here. 
doesn't get any simpler than that. All of history looks back and points forward to this one moment where he moves the queen and says, checkmate. Satan's done. He's over with. What happens if Joseph makes the wrong decision? (coughs) You see, whereas Mary has no choice, Joseph does. The very future of our lives, our salvation is at stake. He didn't help Joseph out. (laughs) It's pretty amazing when you look at the story. Surprise number one, Mary's already pledged to be married when she's found to be pregnant. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about, Matthew 1.18. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. An engagement, once it happened, could only be broken under law by divorce. It's the only way. He couldn't just quietly slip away and say, I changed my mind. That's true in our culture, not theirs. Surprise number two is that Joseph is now faced with a dilemma. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And now he's faced with a dilemma because, as I said, the women were very vulnerable. They, were, they weren't arranged in marriage until about 12 or 13. And so couples in Jewish society, they were, about very, they were allowed very little privacy before the marriage. So he probably didn't know hardly anything about her. Okay, it would have been arranged during all this time. And so when she comes to him with the news, why would he believe her? Would you? Yeah, right, the Holy Spirit. That's a new one, (laughs) right? And more importantly, from her perspective, why could she trust Joseph? I don't think she could. Her only choice was to trust the Lord but she couldn't keep it a secret. It's only a matter of a few weeks and everybody's going to know. She has to be honest. So Jewish tradition demanded a husband expose his wife who had diminished his honor through infidelity. So Joseph was stuck. He had to divorce his wife, but he didn't want to do it through public trial. Since it's a legal contract, it was done through public trial. So according to Jewish tradition, he had the option of divorcing her privately in front of two witnesses rather than the entire town. That's the option he chose. And yet he's stuck because if he stays with her, he's shamed because of what she did. And if if he divorces her, he's dishonored because her unfaithfulness carries with him. That's why the law allowed you to to, uh, stone children in a shame and honor context because your child could bring dishonor on your name and your wife could too. That's why we don't have any examples in the ancient world of parent or adults um, adopting children. They only adopted adults. They waited until they knew their character. Think about that just for a minute. Twice Paul says that we have received adoption as his sonship, his sons. What that means in that ancient world is that he already knew your character before he adopted you. He already knew you. It's remarkable. You don't find this anywhere. Anywhere in history. Surprise number three is that God didn't help Joseph. He waited until after Joseph had considered his options before intervening. Verse 20, after he had considered this, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. 
Because what is conceived of in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew wants us to notice this because he says, after he had considered this, your older translations say, behold, that's missing from the newer ones. But what he's saying is, after Joseph have considered this, and now we know the full story and the vulnerability, he says, look, look what happens. And it's all on the table now. Everything has been considered. Look what happens. And the angel shows up. I've said to you many times that when God is quiet, it doesn't mean he went anywhere. He's quiet here, but he's standing right there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he gets quiet, that's when your faith gets tested to the highest degree. And that's when God's sitting there smiling, saying, what are you going to do? That's when he starts bragging about you, like he did with Job. So when you hear his voice disappear from your life, he's standing right there with a twinkle in his eye. A.W. Tozer called it that. If you look in his eyes right then, you'd see him twinkling because he has confidence in you. He knows what you're going to do. And so he wants us to pay attention to this. So what does he call his son? Jesus, which means God saves. You remember names in the Bible were very important. Names reflected the character of what they wanted that child to be. They, They contained the hopes of the parents And in this case, it's Mary and Joseph and God. So his name, Jesus, represented the conclusion to the quest for the son. Here he is. What was promised in Genesis 3 is now inside of Mary. So what's he called? Emmanuel, God with us. He gave up everything to come live with us. Okay, what do we make of all this? We learned something from both Joseph um, and Mary. They both demonstrated fidelity and faithfulness. They both demonstrated discipline in their personal and their intimate relationship with each other. And remember this. They both placed God's honor above their own. They carried that vulnerability and embarrassment and shame within the rest of their lives. Pharisees would later on say, at least we know who our father is. Say that to Jesus. Can't imagine Mary's shame. Carrying it all of life as a young woman. They They put God's honor above their own. It's a good thing to remember in your marriages. And this is what makes it a love story. It's a love story about God's love for us to send his son. But it's also a love story uh, for a son to assign him, to let him be born to faithful parents. And therefore, it becomes a story of a healthy marriage. It becomes a story of a healthy marriage. Because somebody had to teach him the law. 
Somebody had to teach him how to love. Somebody had to protect him when Herod came after him. That's why I said in the cosmic battle, you're looking at the second in time when the decision was made and God won the battle. Checkmate. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Lord, I look so forward to being with you for eternity and hearing (coughs) everybody's thoughts. I want to ask Joseph, what was it like? I want to ask Mary, the shepherds. I want to ask the, the wise men, what was it like? Jesus, what was it like to give to be born and to not know everything for a while? To be born and to grow up ignorant and having to learn obedience. What was it like? I can't answer those questions, but I can tell you I am so deeply grateful, as we all are. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus, because you're Emmanuel. God with us, you are our high priest. Amen.